tonight, I want to, I think we're in, actually we're in chapter 19. We, uh, so we're still in that part where we're getting in, but this is, would you believe this is our 11th session together? So if you haven't been with us for all 11 sessions, whatever session you missed, you might want to catch up on. It helps where we're going in the next couple weeks. I'm hoping that in, uh, well, not this Wednesday, obviously, but over the next two Wednesdays, we'll be able to finish out the study. Pray. Just all I can say is pray. Okay. But um, I want to get into this tonight, and I'm going to deliver a teaching, and I'm pretty sure that the majority of you might not have ever heard the way I'm presenting it before. So there's, there's new stuff. It's good stuff. You ready for God to show us some things? Amen. So we have the book of Revelations chapter 19. We have noted that as far as we can see, let's do some backdrop here, that there are seven visions in the book of Revelations. Now I hope by this point in, in, in our course, you have seen that each one begins more or less at the first coming of Christ and it moves through church history, not as a, a point of temporal history or geographical history, but, but it, it moves through this period of time that is between the redemption that was in Christ and the end. So it, it moves through that. It, it covers all that area where we live, where, well, that's where we now live, period. And it gives us principles with which to interpret and understand what in the world's going on in this world and all around us. Uh, I trust that you've seen that to a, to a degree. Now remember, the first one began with the Lamb going to the throne and then the seals being unfolded. And we can stand back and look at our history wherever we find ourselves and simply say, now we understand. Now we get the picture. We see what's going on, what's going, what's taking place. And, 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 and because the Lamb reigns, we got this, we got this, we got this, and, and, and it's all taking place. In the middle of all the devastation, of all the upside-downness, of things like, I'm going to get in trouble, but that's okay. That's what I'm here for. Like, like, like the, the, the Senate approving same whatever marriages and all that stuff. You know, we're going, what's going on here? You know, but, but again, I'll just say it in the middle of all that unfolding of the seals, we can see the church, which is the true Israel that we talked about, which under symbolic number was called the 144,000, stood there unharmed, untouched sealed in their foreheads with the seal of the living God. Now, another vision began, and so we moved on. Then that stopped, and another one, you know, began. And so over and over and over, we've gone and, and saw an interpretation of church history and physical history. We, we saw an interpretation with principles that show us what is going on today. And the last time we were together, we saw that there is a system, a world system, that is called in the book of Revelation, you remember what it's called? Babylon. 
This is the world system. And Babylon, the world system, was presented under the symbolic picture of a harlot, a prostitute, who was drunk with the blood of the saints. You, you remember that, correct? Because I, I know after Thanksgiving, everything becomes a blur. You know, it's just turkey and stuff. And now, this is what I want you to understand. We are in the middle of that vision. We only got halfway through it last time. The first part of the vision was, here is the great prostitute, and she seems to rule the world, okay? She sits upon the back of the world, and, 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 and you know, when I say on the back of the world, I'm meaning the leaders, the, the world powers, and she is drunk with the blood of the saints. I'm wanting to squirrel so bad. That's why I'm telling you that. If ever the world seems to conquer, take a good look, okay? Whenever the House Senate does this, whenever this country does that, whenever this all day, take a good look. Smell her perfume. Look at the blush on her face. And she seems to be the mistress of the world. The first half of our vision said things are not what they seem to be. And the great prostitute was judged. It, it, it collapsed. It fell, if you remember. The second half of that vision that we are dealing with says, now I will show you something else. I will show you the opposite, the, uh, uh, the real as opposed to the counterfeit. So the world system is a prostitute, okay? That, that's the depiction. We've gone over that. The devil has his bride. She is a whore. But Christ has his bride. Immediately upon the judgment of Babylon, we are introduced to the bride of Christ. And I hope you have gotten your orientation to this point. We are just following on where we were last time. So... The great prostitute is judged. So let's let's get a start on some things. Revelation 19, let's take a look at the first verse. After these things, I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God because his judgments are true and righteous. For he has judged the great harlot who was corrupting the earth with her immorality and he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. And a second time they said, Hallelujah! Her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God. Who, by the way, you remember who the 24 elders are and all this stuff? Okay, good. Uh, saying, Amen! Hallelujah! And a voice came from the throne saying, Give praise to our God, all you his bondservants, you who fear him, the small and the great. Then I heard something like a voice of a great multitude and like the sound of many waters and like the sound of mighty pearls of thunder saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. All right, let's get into some things. I don't know if you're aware of it, but I basically you know, have a way of saying that that has many problems, if you look at it. If you don't have problems with it, maybe you've never 
thought about it before. That is the trouble when we think sometimes. How many know what I'm talking about? It, 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 it gives you problems. And I don't know who it is. You know, I, I've heard people say, well, you know, yeah, I, I, you know I, I, don't, I just don't understand it. Jesus, I just believe that Jesus is coming. Hallelujah. You know, and I'm like, whoa, wait a minute. I, it's okay. I, I get what they're saying. But this, and, and what we're doing takes studying in more than one kind of a setting. I mean, it's, it's called going over it and going over it. And I've done it for 40-some years. So that's why I, I feel like I'm at a place where I can bring this to you in a, in a, in a, in a place, in a, in a certain level, and then hopefully that ignites you to do a little bit more digging from that point. Because when you think, I mean, I come to a situation like what is described in chapter 19, and as a, as a normal human being, I kind of have a problem with it, right? And my problem is they are looking at, they're beholding the entire world system going up in flames. They're seeing the smoke of torment. They're seeing the judgments of God, and they're in an ecstasy of worship. They're saying, hallelujah, the Lord God, the Almighty reigns. I mean, it's actually stated in verse 3. And the second time they said, hallelujah, I have, I have to ask the question, why? I mean, you got people, you got things, boom, it's all falling down. The smoke rises up forever and ever. Now, these are heavy words. They stand before the judgments of God. They see the wrath of God continually being fulfilled. The smoke of their torment is ascending and they are shouting with ecstasy, hallelujah, look at them burn, hallelujah, look at the smoke, hallelujah, look at the torment. God's judgments. See, I find among Christians today that we can sometimes be embarrassed about this God. And, 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 and I say that because Christians today have no problem telling you that God is love, right? And that's true. I mean, please, I have no problems there. I am not embarrassed of a God who loves people. But when it comes to hell and judgment in verses like this, I find in a lot of places the church kind of coughs with an embarrassing cough. And they wish that it wasn't kind of, they wish it wasn't there. Whereas here in the scripture, they're, they're, not, they're not stating it. They, they are not, they're certainly not stating it with a cough, but they are stating it ecstasy of worship. God has judged the world system. Hallelujah. God has judged the world system. Hallelujah. And, and you see, we have got to face up to the fact that God is not a God if he is not a God of justice and righteousness and judgment. Can somebody say that? In fact, the Bible teaches me that God's justice his readiness to punish sin, his wrath, his anger is, is part of his goodness. Hello. I mean, do you remember back in Exodus chapter, uh, chapter 33 and 19? Moses cried to God that the glory of God would pass before him. Remember that? It, God said, I will cause my goodness to pass before you. Now, notice that. I will cause my goodness to pass before you. 
when my goodness passes before you, part of that goodness is justice. Notice what it says there in verse 19. He said, I will make, I will myself, I myself, <laughs> I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show compassion on whom I show compassion. Now, two things here. God is not good unless he judges sin. God is not good unless he judges sin. And sin has defiled the attributes of God. God is sovereign. Okay, take a look at the opposite. Sin has mocked his sovereignty and said, I too am sovereign. God is omnipresent. Sin says, I will, act, I will act as if God isn't even here. Okay? That is what the Bible means when it says that we have done this evil in thy sight. The fact that sin was not merely committed, it was committed in the very presence of God himself. Do you understand that? On, I mean, we could go on and on about this stuff, but, but sin has mocked and defiled every attribute of God. If God in his attributes is absolute perfection, which we know he is, then God delights in his own attributes. I have to delight in God. God delights in himself. There is nothing more glorious. There is nothing more perfect. There is nothing more beautiful than the attributes of God. Therefore, because of that, all creation is to delight in them. And God delights in them himself. God's joy is the joy that he has in himself. Do you realize that God has joy in himself? So the joy of the Lord is my strength. If man defiles those attributes, if, if man mocks them, does God really delight in himself? I, mean, I have to ask, is he really God? If he re, if he, is he really the object of absolute perfection? Unless ultimately he will move out to punish all those that have set themselves up as, as, as another center. If God is not a God of justice, there is every reason to question whether he is God at all, okay? I hope you follow what I'm saying there. Or let's put it this way. If God was to behold evil with pleasure, could he be a good God? A God that could look at evil done in his presence and against him, could that be could that God be good? Would you ever trust the justice of God if he beheld evil with pleasure? I mean, think about that. That's what I'm trying to say. I could not worship a God who beheld evil with pleasure. If I did worship such a God, it would be a God of darkness. Let's just put it out there. God has to punish sin or he isn't God. No matter how uncomfortable that makes us feel. Or, 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 or to put it this way, uh, you know, let's be positive about it. 
not only a God who takes pleasure in evil could not be worshipped, but also a God who is to be worshipped for his absolute goodness must be the aggressive enemy of evil. Not just so-so, not just out, but aggressive enemy of evil. The God of the Bible is not some neutral God, friend. It's not some God who could really care less about whether it's this or whether it's that. He's not just sort of out there. There is, there is goodness going on and there is evil going on. And he could not, and it's not like he could care less about all of it, you know? It, the God of the Bible is the one who must ag- aggressively be against evil and aggressively for good. Therefore, he's got to punish sin. The doctrine of hell in the Bible is necessary, it's a necessity, period. It's not something that we're embarrassed about. If I am really going to understand God in his goodness, if I'm going to understand him in his righteousness, I I stand with this crowd, okay, this multitude in the heavens. And when they see the world system collapsing and they see the torment of sin and the wrath of God, then they stand and they begin an ecstasy of worship, which is one of the greatest in the book of Revelation, right here in chapter 19. We, we have touched on a whole lot of worship throughout Revelation. But this, this one, this, this is the highest one. It's, it, it, it was, do, you, do you realize that it was from chapter 19 of Handel's Messiah that that's where, it was, this, that, that's where Handel's Messiah was inspired? The great hallelujah course was taken from Revelation 19. There's a trivia question for you. And it is really an adoration of the God who must and who does judge sin. <coughs> we don't want to think of it that way. We've got too many people we, lo- we love that, that are not, you know, but it's bigger than this, friend. Now, the bride of Christ, all those who have refused to bow down to the beast, they are gathered together right now and are adoring God because he did it. He did it. Do you remember the fifth seal in chapter 6? This same company that we're talking about here is, 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 is seen as saying what? How long? How long? Remember that? How long, O oh Lord? That there, there's nothing right. Salvation has not been accomplished, actualized on earth, until all who oppose God have been put down. You really need to think about that. It is that salvation has not been accomplished, in other words, actualized on earth, until all who oppose God have been put down. So... This is the grand finale. That's what I'm getting to. And so the great cry goes up. Hallelujah. The Lord God Almighty reigns. Now, I I don't know how you feel from the depths of your spirit about that. It's one thing to study it here. 
it's another thing to, to look out at this world and to know God just doesn't, you know, wink at it. He doesn't wink at sin. Hello? The long suffering of, of God waits. But unquestionably, and I'm telling you that with everything in me, all that is associated with the world system is going to be judged and eternally judged. And there is no question about it. But that is almost the wedding march, if you please. But the chapter moves on. Let's take a look at verse 7. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Get ready to understand some things here. On the one hand, <clears throat> all that have opposed him have been put down. On the other hand, those who have the seal of the Lamb in their foreheads, they have made themselves ready. On the one hand, you've got the prostitute has, that has been thrown down for what, for what she is. The world has been stripped of glamour. On the other hand, the bride is seen for who she really is. Now, what I'm asking you is, please, and this is where we're going to take some time tonight and do a little deviation, okay? Don't rush on when you come to that expression, bride, bride. We have seen all through the book of Revelation echoes, right? Everything we've touched on, everything we've looked at here, it's all about the echoes. That's the word we have used to describe it. Every word, every concept, every picture of Revelation is an echo from somewhere else. And, and when we come to the expression bride, that is an echo from all well, throughout all of the Bible. That, in one sense, it is the oldest echo that is consistently picked up to tell us something about the nature of the true church. Do you remember Paul gives us that? I mean, you can read it for yourselves in, e in, in Ephesians chapter 5 and, and verse 22 through 32. We're not going to read through all those verses, but he goes all the way back to the first marriage between Adam and Eve. And there in verse 32 of Ephesians, Paul states this, This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. So we have the Pauline authority to state that the Old Testament is, is teaching us concerning Christ and the church under the symbols of Adam and Eve, the groom and the bride. So there, uh, you know, there are a lot of pictures of the church in the Bible, and many pictures, especially that we have in the New Testament. The one picture is that of a bride and, and, and a groom, Christ the groom, and the church the bride, correct? Th that is one of that, 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 again, I'll say over and over, it spans throughout the entire Bible. So in that sense, I, I can't just say, hey, you know, there is a marriage here. You know, kind of thing. No. Adam and Eve, the first groom and the first bride, teaches us everything that we need to know of what God means when he says the word bride. So, let's go through it. You remember when God took Eve 
Where? Out of the side of Adam. He then presented to Adam after the surgery and said, here is your wife. Do you remember that Adam said, this woman is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh? Have you ever really, really thought about that? Or you just, it's just, you know, what's the saying, right? No. Some of these expressions we know so well, we never think about them anymore. That's the problem. Bone of my bone. The bones that she has are really my bones. Flesh of my flesh. So the flesh she has is really my flesh. That's a huge statement. What was he saying? He is saying, the one who is coming towards me now is none other than me. She is me in another form, right? Adam had a tremendous command of language. The idea that our ancestors were grunting apes is kind of funny if you want to. So I wanna, I'm going to continue in, you know. No, he was born with, with an incredible command of language, and he'd already, he'd already called himself in Hebrew the word ish. Ish means self. It means a person. It means a rational person. It was, it was, it's like when you look in the mirror and you can say, I, me, myself. We've been doing a little remodeling in our front room, and Kathy brought out this mirror that she's looking at putting up set it on the floor to see how it would look up against the wall and stuff. And, and one of our dogs, <laughs> I don't have to explain anything else. It was, a, it was an entertaining night, let's just put it that way. He'd go in front of it and he'd look again. And <laughs> just one of these things. But, you know, here's what I'm saying. It, it doesn't mean much today when we talk about something like that. But when you are the only person on earth, that means quite a bit. Hello? You just can't turn to the animals and say, ish, right? They're not a person. He had named all the animals. Every animal had its name. But when it came to himself, he said, ish, I'm different from all the others. They're great animals. I mean, they're great pets. They, they imitate me. But they're not me. I'm ish. That's the Hebrew word. And, of course, we translate that man, and in the first chapter of Genesis, man, me, I. Now, when Eve came towards him, Genesis tells us that he called her woman. But in Hebrew, that word is isha, right? Do, do you see what he's saying here? He had looked everywhere. He had looked all over and amongst the animals. I mean, is there... Is there another ish? Is there another ish out there? Is there is another self that I can communicate with? Another me? And there wasn't one. He couldn't find fellowship with the animals. When Eve came towards him, he took one look and said, ish. And then he saw that she was different. And he said, ah, isha, she's me but not me. She's me in another form. You got that? 
She's born. She, she's bone of my bone. She is flesh of my flesh, self of myself. She's me, yet she is distinct from me. Okay. Put that on hold. That was the very first message. That is the understanding when the Bible says the word bride. Hold that in your head. So how, how did she come to be, right? How was she even there? You remember, Adam was put asleep. Men do that. But do you remember where she was taken from? She was taken from his side. Yeah, his rib. God built, he sculptured out of that rib another self. You could say then that Adam slept in order that Eve may live. Grab hold of that for a second. I want, you, I want you to put that in your head. When I come to the cross of Jesus, there are two sides to that cross. The side we emphasize a great deal is that the blood of Jesus was shed in order to redeem us from our sins. And that's true, obviously. But there's another side. Jesus also died in order that the church the bride may have life. You remember that so, I mean, significantly, John records that as he stood at the cross, there came this Roman soldier, and he did what? He pierced his side. And what flowed out of his side? Water and blood. Now, understand, blood speaks of the wiping out of sin, but water throughout the entire Bible speaks of life. Jesus died, on the one hand, to redeem from sin, but on the other hand, to give life to the church. Now, these are very quick points that I want to pull in together, so I hope you write fast. The church of Jesus came out of the side of Jesus. He died that she might have life. And here's, here's, here's the phrase... I really want you to remember so that when I look at the church, I am looking at Jesus in another form. Do you understand that? Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. You explain the church apart from Jesus. Go ahead. You can't. The church is not a human organization. Hello? Most of what we call the church today is Babylon. I think we, we made that plain the last time that we met. This is, this is not the church. The church is that company in, of people in whom the very life of Jesus Christ is. Therefore, when I look at the church, I am looking at Jesus in another form. That is why in John chapter 3, when it speaks of the, ver of, of the way Every individual enters into that church through the, what, new birth. You remember? It says you have to be born from above, born again, born from above. Now, we'll cover in our next hours, we'll come to it, and, 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 and finally to the new Jerusalem. 
which we're going to see is yet another picture of the church. Just whet your appetite for that. It says that there, there that the new Jerusalem came down out of heaven. Right? There is there's no natural explanation of the church, right? It is born out of the death of Jesus. Now, at this point, we're not talking about our sins being wiped out. That's a that 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 that's an incredible, glorious fact for sure. I mean, we are talking about the life being given so that we become the church. He is eternal-ish, and he looks at us, the church, and he says, Isha. We are Christ in another form. His life is within us. Now, I'm going to say something. I'm going to repeat it several times. And I'm not, uh, this is one of the strongest statements. I, I have to make this, and that is that a, a bottom line is only that which is of God can be presented to God. Only that which is of God can be presented to God. I, I trust you understand what I mean by that. This is huge to understand. It would have been useless for God to bring a monkey to Adam. Right? For a wife? Because the monkey was not of Adam. Only that which is of Adam could be presented to Adam for a wife. You get that, right? Okay, only that which came out of his side, his very other self. Now, that other self can be presented to him for fellowship. The two can know each other. If I'm going to present to God my good works, if I'm going to come to God and say, I'm doing my best, I've been, you know, I, I've, been, I've been struggling hard, but, you know, look at what I've done. Look at what I'm doing. That, friend, is an abomination to God. Only that which is of God can be presented right, to God. That's what the prayer talks about, if not by works. You say, well, I'm trying hard to be like Jesus. There's a one of our oldest hymns. To be like Jesus. To be like, you know. <laughs> Do you get what I'm talking about? Because I'll be honest, there were plenty of apes in the Garden of Eden trying to be like Adam. Okay, apes have, a, have been good mimics for forever. As far as, you know, to try and be like Jesus, to mimic him is not a qualification for being part of this company that we're talking about. Only that which is of God can be presented to God. Only through the death of Jesus, when the spirit of Jesus comes into us, and we begin to exhibit the fruit of the Spirit, and our lives are of God, now that is a bride that's fit to be presented to Him. Not that I am saying that, that, that the church is Jesus. Uh-uh. 
any more than Jesus is the church, or any more than Eve was Adam. Uh, or, or, or as God said, the two shall become one. He didn't say that the, 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 the one shall become one. They were two. You are not Jesus Christ. Christ is in you. You have life because of him. But you are not him any more than Eve was Adam. Two, two, two distinct ones. They're one. Go have yourself a cup of tea and ask how how water became Jesus. So the church is alive with the life of Jesus. And in that sense, we're talking Jesus in another form. And yet, she's not Jesus. They are two, and yet those two are one. That is the idea behind the bride. You will find another, I call it just an incredible, beautiful picture of the bride. And that is, to me, one of the most unquestionable echoes in the Old Testament to this New Testament idea in Genesis chapter 22. Now, I'm sure you're familiar with the story of how Abraham took Isaac and offered him where? On Mount Moriah. And as the knife is poised to to just plunge into the heart of his son as an offering unto God, God stayed his hand. It's significant that at that point, when Isaac was, in effect, dead and raised again. Because Hebrews chapter 11, you can look it up in verses 17 through 19, it puts it this way, that in effect, Isaac died. The parallel here, or what I want to show you, is unbelievable. It, it was three days since Abraham obeyed God. And for three days, Isaac lay dead in the heart of Abraham. He was going from his tent. He was going to offer Isaac. And for three days, he lay dead in Abraham's heart. In Hebrews 11, it says that Abraham was positive that even if the knife went into his heart, God would raise the boy from the dead to prove his promises. So, therefore, the knife did not go in. But on the third day, Isaac, in the heart of Abraham, rose again from the dead. You do know where Mount Moriah is, right? Because... People today call it Calvary. It is the very same mountain. And in that very same place, 2,000 years later, Jesus would die and just down the road, just a, 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 a underneath there a little bit, in a tomb, he would rise again from the dead. Now, now put this together. Having told that story in Genesis 22, which is 20 or 23, which is such a parallel to the cross. The last verse, I should say verses, of, of, of that chapter, they just seem to go off in a bizarre way. I mean, they say that at that time, you know, at, you know you've got all this behind the story of sacrificing the son and what Abraham's in his heart and 
And then he stays his hand and all this taking place. And, and, then, and then right after that, it says Abraham heard that his brother who lived in Bardam Aram in Syria had some children. Whoopee. I mean, really, I don't know about you, but I remember, you know, thinking to myself when I first read that a long time ago, I thought, really? Whoever wrote this has really got bad timing. I mean, you're, you're trembling with anticipation. What's next? What's going to happen here? Isaac nearly died, and, and they're coming back, and God did that, and, and, and this, and then, oh, and by the way, here's a letter that says Uncle Nahor, Nahor had, had kids. Great! And so you notice that one of those children's name was Rebecca. And Rebecca was to become the bride of Isaac. And you talk about the Holy Spirit putting something together. In the chapter in which Isaac was offered up and in type was raised again, immediately the Holy Spirit says, and that is when Rebecca was born. I hope you get this. In death and in the death and resurrection of Jesus, that is when the bride was born. It's a, it's a tremendous prayer. You, you can follow it through the book of Ruth, for example. The book of Ruth is another tremendous translation of the Bible, which is there just to teach us more about the concept of the bride. Ruth was an outcast, right? She was a Moabite. I mean, a Moabite Moabite. I, I mean, she, in other words, was a dirty Gentile. Say that with me. Dirty. No, 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 no. You got to do it with a snarl. Dirty Gentile. There you go. She couldn't even speak Hebrew. And so here she is. She's a different color to the people she went to. She spoke a different language. She was a Gentile, and she came into the congregation of Israel. She came into a poverty-stricken situation. And then Boaz turns up. You see, Boaz was that special person. You've heard, and you've heard me teach on this, the expression kinsman, redeemer. You do know what, I've given you the word of what kinsman, redeemer is. The word in, 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 in Israel, uh, the word goel means my relative, my kinsman, but it also means my redeemer. If I am your relative under the ancient Hebrew idea and you're in trouble, I have to redeem you. I may not like you, but you know that, that's really beside the point. You're my relative, and if you're my relative, then I have to redeem you. So the word relative and the word redeemer is one word in Hebrew, goel. So here they find Boaz, and, and Ruth had married into the family, and the husband had died, but she was in the family, an outcast, unwanted, but Boaz is a redeemer, a relative. And so the whole story of the book of Ruth is that he came and, and, and became her redeemer. He marries her. He brought her under his umbrella all the riches and dignity of the name and became her goel 
her kinsman, her redeemer. Now remember that it's of that line, the line of Ruth, that Jesus will be born. Jesus Christ is our Goel. We're the outcast. We're the unwanted. We don't have any rights to the promises of God. And God over and over and over and again said, I am your redeemer. I often wonder what the ancient Hebrews thought about that because God is saying, I'm your relative. How can God, who is eternal spirit, be a relative of men of flesh and blood? That's the whole argument of Hebrews chapter 2. God did not take from God did not take on him the form of angels, but he took on the form of a man. And 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 saying that, you know, that's flesh and blood. And God then in my flesh and blood can say, I am your relative. I am your goel. I am I'm a man like you. In the cross, he redeemed us and married his Ruth. Hello. We become the bride of the Goel, the Redeemer. I hope you're stacking these on top of each other, what we're talking about here, because these echoes, it, it's all there. The book of Revelation goes all the way back. All through the Old Testament, Israel was called the bride of Jehovah. But the bride is waiting, always waiting. Now, in Christ, the Goel, the bride, has become a reality. And all the jewels of the promises of God, they are now yes and amen in Jesus Christ. So when it says the marriage of the Lamb has come, that is a loaded statement, friend. The marriage that goes all the way back to where we just have seen the Lamb we have already met in Revelations chapter 5. The marriage of the Lamb has come. The marriage of the Lamb has come. But more than that, let me explain some more. That's why I'm taking time here tonight. You know that marriages in the East are not marriages in the West. There's a difference. And we should take a, at least a little brief look at this and the difference in order to understand what what what, what is is, is being said here. The marriage of the Lamb has come. What does that mean? It can only be understood in Eastern terms. The first step of a marriage in the East was an engagement. Forget everything you know about our Western protocol, okay? Forget the idea of looking at your girl in the eyes with your eyes twinkling and, and, you know, in your ears, the bells are going off all over the place and saying, will you marry me? Forget it. They had a much more sensible idea of it, okay? You send an old servant. And if he knows a woman, he knows a woman. And if you are just some young feller, what do you know about women? Not this fellow. He's been around for a while, right? And he knows he knows about women. Now, this, this guy, uh, like I said, we're going to trust. We're not going to trust a young whippersnapper. We, we, we're not even going to let him loose, period. 
He stays home. He will send the person he knows. Matchmaker, matchmaker. Remember the fiddler on, on the roof? Yeah? I, I played in Fiddler on the Roof. It was a mess. No, I was a drunken soldier, okay? Are you happy now? I'll just be a minute. I'm going to be at the altar for a second. But, it, you know, the, the is my face red on TV right now? Y you're getting a pretty good idea of the Eastern way of handling things by Fiddler on the Roof. It has some good points to it. But what he's basically saying is, you know, hey, young guy, you're too young, too foolish to think of marriage. We, we're going to send the matchmaker, and he is the one who goes. Now, if you were to follow this through Genesis chapter 24, it's the perfect picture. He's at his home. Isaac is at his home. Matchmaker Eleazar, the trusted servant, goes to Padan Aram to find a bride for Isaac. The fact that Isaac had never set eyes on Rebekah, never set eyes on Rebekah, the fact that there were no photographs, no internet, no dating apps, you know, like that. Is, is, that's, that's beside the point. Eleazar comes to Rebekah. And the fact that Rebekah had never set eyes on Isaac is, again, beside the point. Eleazar knows where he is at. And, and in that story, there is more at work than Eleazar. And that is what we're dealing with right now. That was a, a picture of the bride. And who's the matchmaker? The Holy Spirit comes to us. We are in Padan Aram, the place that was very, very materialistic and worldly with Laban, the boss of it all. And into Padan Aram comes the Holy Spirit Eleazar, and he came to Rebekah, and he re invited her to become the bride of Isaac. That meant, of course, from our perspective, that she was called to inherit the blessings of Abraham. Although she was born in Padamaram, and she came to be married to the unknown Isaac and to receive every blessing God had ever promised to Isaac. She was going to be born into it. It was an engagement. Now, engagement, as you know, was as binding as marriage. You, you remember that when Joseph wanted to put Mary away, uh, that they were not married yet, but he had to get a bill of divorce to put her away, right? An engagement was not a period before the final commitment. Engagement was the final commitment. Engagement was followed by a period of time before the marriage, but the engagement was the commitment. That's the point. And so the Holy Spirit comes to us course, what this book is looking at is us as a unit, a, a block, a, all of us together. 
This is what has happened to us. The Holy Spirit has come to us. You have never seen Jesus. But whom having not seen, you love. We are now rejoicing with a joy unspeakable. The engagement has taken place. Paul says exactly, well, not exactly, but in 2 Corinthians in chapter 11 and verse 12 where it says, he has engaged us as a virgin to Christ. We've come, the engagement of, 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 of which there is no breaking but to take place. The engagement was followed by a period of time by which they didn't see each other. And, and still they don't see each other. I mean, this period of time is the period of time discussed all the way through the book of Revelations. His death and resurrection. And then the white horse goes forth and the Holy Spirit puts an arrow in our hearts and, 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 and we are claimed forever for Jesus. Remember that? You become part of the bride engaged to the unseen Christ, you become a part of that bride and, and part of the 144,000, that symbolic number. How long, O oh Lord? How long? How long? There's a period of time before the marriage takes place. And this is the time where there are the seals, the trumpet, and the bowls. This is when the beast walked on the earth, and the prostitute seems to have it all. Then another tremendous echoing. The one chapter, this, this one chapter, chapter 19, has so many echoes. Way back there. One great echo in this chapter in the Song of Solomon. I don't, I don't know if you have ever read the Song of Solomon and what you've seen there, but basically it's a story that Solomon told on himself. He is the great king of Jerusalem. And Solomon goes out to look for more women to put in his house. So the, the, the great king Solomon goes out into the villages and, and finds women to take back to his palace. And he picks up, or he picks upon this, this one shepherdess. And he drags her back to his palace. <laughs> she doesn't want to come. Once there, he, he loads her with all the perfumes and fine clothing, and, and all she says is, have you ever seen the man I love? Oh, you really should see him. And then there are visits to the palace by the beloved, and she runs through the streets of Jerusalem to find him. He's the one, Jerusalem, everybody here. You, you couldn't have missed him. And what does Solomon finally do? Goes back. What's the use? Let her go back. I mean, he sees, and, 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 and hmm. he sees her in the last chapter. And she's leaning on her beloved. He says, who is this one, or who is this who comes out of the wilderness leaning on her beloved? <laughs> he said, that is water. You can't quench it. I'm sorry, that is love. <laughs> Water can't quench it. Fire cannot burn it. What, what is it saying? 
saying this, the church of Jesus Christ, betrothed. She wasn't married to that shepherd. She was betrothed. She was engaged. And who comes along to the church but Solomon, who at that time of his life related more to the great harlot than the beast. I mean, you got to know the story of Solomon and his going backwards here. I mean, he's saying to us, come on, I'll load you down with all these riches. I will give you all you want, all you need. Drag her away. The church is being attacked on every, every side, inside, outside. Forsake Christ, deny him. And the church, all the church does is, Say, if, if, if ever you have seen my Jesus, if you understand my Jesus, until finally, the, it's like the world is saying, I'll just go back to your beloved. What's the use? Waters cannot quench him. I hope you get the picture here. It's a tremendous book. It's talking about a period of time. The engagement is there, but you don't see each other. That is what the whole book of Revelation is about. Don't give in. Have patience. And if necessary, have wisdom. Understand what is going on. And then there comes the time when the groom leaves his home and comes to the house of the bride to pick her up. Remember the story in Genesis 24? This is where Isaac left his home and went out to meet the bride as she came. That was the way it was done. And, and the thing is, in this chapter, you've got the picture of the groom coming to meet the bride. So look at verse 11 there in Revelation. He says, And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. Now, I, I don't need an interpretation of who this is, right? We've met Faithful and True in chapter 1 and verse 5. That is where Jesus was described to us as a faithful and true one. But also, we have seen him already in chapter 6, riding out on the white horse, and he rode out on the white horse in order to gather together his bride. Now he comes to collect his bride. That's the idea here. So look at the rest of 11 there. It also says that at, at the time, we must, I mean, I, we can't forget this part. And in righteousness... <coughs> Excuse me. He judges and wages war. He has come to collect his bride, yes, but in so doing, he must judge the beast and the false prophet and the woman who sat on them all, and the great whore and the dragon himself. It's not enough to say that God loves us. If God loves us, he must punish all who hate us. It says in verse 12, he has... His eyes are as a flame of fire. Well, we met that. We met him, the one whose eyes are as a flame of fire, back in chapter 1 and verse 14. It says in, in verse 12, And on his head there are many diadems. Diadems are crowns. That I find interesting. That goes right back to the ascension that Paul speaks of in Philippians 2, where Paul says God has given him a name that at that name every knee shall bow, every tongue confess. It's all the crowns. 
Or again, it says in, in, in chapter 12, speak back there in Revelation, speaking of when Jesus rose again, the kingdoms of the world have become the kingdoms of the Lord and of his Christ. Remember? Do you remember in the temptation, the devil presented himself to Jesus and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of a time. And he said, all these I will give you for it is to, uh, that, that I will give you is, is, is delivered into my hands to do it. And do you remember the picture of the devil? We already met with the crowns on his head back. The, the power behind the empire of the world was the devil, right? And he says, I can give you any one that you want or all of them if you like. Only bow down and worship me. The beast and his horns. Jesus or the dragon. And Jesus had come to this world in order to take all of the kingdoms of the earth. The devil said, why go through all that? Just bow down, and they'll be yours anyways. But you see, Jesus had come to take the diadems and to slay the devil. He took them back, and he refuses the devil, and he goes through the way of the cross and the resurrection. And when he rose again from the dead, he said he had gotten what the devil had offered him. He said, all authority is given unto me in heaven and upon the earth. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of the Lord and of his Christ. In this, in between, he is, he's bringing evil to its fullest order. In, in order, I should say, that he may defeat it totally. That the cross might be actualized on earth. And as he comes now to take his bride, he has many diadems. They have all been taken from the heads of the dragon, and they are now on the head of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is King of kings, and he is Lord of lords. And I say, amen. goes on to say in, in, in verse 12 of chapter 19, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. That name is didn't get the it's mm, bad joke. I understand. Do you remember the names that were written on the beast? It says that their heads were covered with names of what? Blasphemy. This one has a name written which no man knows. That speaks to the fact who is Jesus Christ? Quite frankly, when all is said and done. We know who he is. You remember one of the titles of Jesus in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6? That one section, it says, His name shall be called. Mm. Let's say you're at your birthday party and you open up a, a birthday present, right? And you sort of expected what you were going to get, right? But I don't really. No, here it is, you know. And then you get a surprise because. It is wonderful. You say that because it's, it's, it's more than what you expected. And once you have taken in what you've gotten, you open up the top thinking that you knew all about that thing that's in that box, and it is even more wonderful than you thought because it also comes with batteries. 
sorry. It's getting there. But you're saying this is wonderful. The word wonderful assumes that you are getting more than you expected. It assumes you are discovering more than you thought possible to discover. See, the name is wonderful. And every time you think you understand Jesus, <laughs> the Holy Spirit says, hey, 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 just a minute. Don't get too prideful in where you think you think you are. And you say, once the Holy Spirit shows you, you say, that's wonderful. It's even, it's a little bit more than you even thought. And upon him is written a name that no man knows, a mystery. The mystery of God incarnate is Christ in Christ is an eternal study. I don't care how old you are or how young you are. It's an eternal study. It's an infinite nature of the Godhead. It goes on and says in Revelation 13, he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. You never forgot the cross. You never forget the cross. Even when the glory of the marriage of the Lamb is come, you will ever be reminded of the cross. And his name is called the Word of God. Just in case you don't know who it was, John says, just you know, refer back to my gospel. It says that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now it says in verses 15 and 16, from his mouth comes a sharp sword. Again, that, that refers us back to the first chapter where we met Jesus with a sharp sword. So that with it he may strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, uh, the Almighty. This is what we have been meeting all the way through the book of Revelations. <laughs> Under the term, are you ready? Armageddon. I know that the last time we were together, we got, we got that far, right? And I said I would deal with it the next time we came together, and, and we got, we've gotten, well, we kind of just, well, I'm, I'm apologizing because I really needed to take time to explain this. And, and, and I'm saying to you tonight, that's exactly where we're going here tonight. And we'll have to because we don't have any time left tonight. Um, and I don't want to just give a couple minutes to what has become to me one of the most, one of the key words in some people's interpretation of this book. And so let it be said that at this point, I want you to get the whole picture. Okay? Here is the church. Surrounded by the beast, surrounded by the false prophet, all these symbolic terms which describe the peoples and the ideas and the philosophies of this world and overall the great whore. Now we see that he comes into the midst of all this and there is described the judgment. Verse 20, right? And, and, and or I should say, Revelation, and the beast was seized and with him, false prophet. It says they were seized and they were judged. So here is Christ coming into the midst of all those opposing forces that have come against the church. And listen very closely. It is not a battle. It's not a battle. I challenge you to find such a battle. He came and that was it. The idea of battle 
you have to wait for that for our next hour that we spend together to see what that idea has within it. But enough to say that at this coming of Christ, all the forces that opposed the church were defeated. The marriage of the Lamb has come, which, of course, is at the very end of this uh, protocol of the Eastern wedding that we're talking about. The groom came to where his bride was. She didn't go to him. He came to her, and he took her from there. And they lived happily ever after, however you want to talk about it. Or as 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 says, so we shall always be with the Lord. That's at the, well, I want you to read chapter 4. That's I'm hoping to do Thessalonians next year. At that point, the bride and the groom are seen as belonging to each other. It is one thing to live in the little village, so to speak, on the backside of Israel, right? And say, I happen to be married to the king of kings. Really? It's going to fool me, right? But when the day of marriage comes and the king of kings comes for his bride that nobody believed, well, you have to admit it, she's right. That is the idea of Colossians 3 where it says, when Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. John, in his first epistle, in chapter 3, he says in verse 2, Beloved, now we are, the, we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. It is one thing to say that you're a son of God and the world says, <laughs> right, whatever, you're a hypocrite. But when the marriage of the Lamb has come and the bride and the groom appear together, we shall be seen as we are and we shall be known as he really is. And all those that defy the fact that he is king of kings and that he is Lord of lords, will see that he is king of kings and that he is Lord of lords. The entire universe will know that things are not what they had seemed to be. And every knee shall bow and every tongue confess, some with joy, some with anger. But every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Can somebody say amen? All righty. Well, you have endured tonight, and I know I'm pushing it, but I want to be able to get to the sessions in for us. Would you stand with me and go, ooh, <coughs> come, Lord Jesus, come. You know, I know it, it's, it's taught on the other side of things that, you know, when he comes, we'll be with him for a thousand years, and then we'll come back and all that stuff. It's not what Thessalonians says. It says that when he comes, doesn't Christ show rise first? If we who are alive, who remain, will be caught up to be with him, and there we will be for a thousand years. That's not what it says. But it says we will be with him.
get ready for the next, just finish out. I mean, get get chapter, you know, read the rest of 19 and get into 20, 20, you know, just finish it out. Turn to your neighbor and say, man, I got to go through this stuff again. <laughs> but let me just say this in closing. You are a beautiful bride. Chosen, drawn, redeemed. You're not going to hell. Father, thank you for tonight and for your word and for where you're leading and guiding us, Lord. And I, I pray that we will continue to feed upon your words, that we continue to be taught by you, not by Pastor Buck or by me, but by Holy Spirit. You show us all things. You teach us. You become our wisdom. Continue to make your word come alive and that we bear witness in our spirit we are the children of God, that we are who you say we are. Bless us, I pray. Bless Buck. Encourage them. Strengthen them. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. God bless you guys. These altars are open. You want to find a place of prayer, we encourage you to do so as the music plays. God bless you guys. We'll see you in December.